you're listening to the Field Notes Podcast, where we descend from abstract ideas and disembodied theologies into the embodied, context-specific particulars of ministry on the ground. We hear from local leaders about struggle, breakthrough, doubt, hope, and everything in between. I'm your host, Seth Richardson. It's still a struggle for me uh, to to break out of kind of a big box church mentality. So many things in, in our community that are, are not impressive at all, but the, the people uh, love one another and the relationships are rich. I know it's already a new calendar year, but this is the concluding episode of season one. In each episode, I hope you've noticed a common theme. The voices featured here are just regular, ordinary leaders, just like you. Without a doubt, each person has a remarkable story, navigating the challenges and hopes of local ministry in ways that witness to the surprising and revolutionary work of God's Spirit. The point, though, is that these ordinary stories, the stories unfolding on the margins of the hot fire Twitter feeds, outside the city limits of celebrity Christian leadership, these stories, these regular stories, are loaded with the embodied signs of how God is remaking and reconciling our lives, if we have eyes to see. I'm delighted that Luke McFadden is capping off this season. His ministry in Waukegan, Illinois at Christian Neighbors Church embodies the best of the profound simplicity and subtle revolutionary possibility that has characterized our stories this season. Here's Luke. So Christian Neighbors Church, where I serve as pastor, is located in Waukegan. Waukegan is different things to different people. Uh, To some people, it's an under-resourced, rust-belt context that is a far cry from what it used to be. Uh, to, To others, particularly Latin American immigrants, it's a haven for job opportunities and the setting for the deepening of transplanted family roots. Uh, And then there are others who, despite its setbacks, view Waukegan optimistically. They're working hard to try to rebrand it into any number of things, uh, like an emerging arts community. Uh, it's, It's a city that's viewed differently by different people. Uh, my wife and I moved to Waukegan in 2010 uh, to start a church, and uh, we received some advice from uh, a mentor that I had in urban ministry, and he told me uh, not to bring in a large core team, uh, not to bring in a lot of people from the outside to uh, to start the ministry, but instead to Uh, show up, move into the neighborhood, connect with neighbors, uh, listen to them, uh, really uh, learn from them, and then uh, pursue the open doors that that God provided, uh, lead people to faith in Christ, and then uh, to allow them to grow into the leaders of our church. And as you can imagine, this was uh, a long, slow process, but it was very, very good advice. So our church actually began as a Bible study, and it was comprised primarily of of folks uh, who 
lived in public housing. Uh, my wife and I were living in an apartment building right next to two large public housing residences in Waukegan. Uh, and um, the folks that became part of our, our Bible study uh, were wonderful, resilient uh, people. Uh, and some came in professing faith in Jesus. Um, others uh, didn't quite know what they believed, but um, the, the Bible study that ensued from you know, these, these gatherings was raucous and oddly fruitful, uh, really amazing um, meetings where people, you know, at one point would be rejoicing uh, about what God was saying to them through passages they were reading for the first time. And then the next moment, someone would walk in drunk, looking to fight somebody. And I have no idea how anybody learned anything, uh, but uh, God was moving in the midst of what felt to me like chaos. And although it wasn't a setting in which we experienced explosive growth or, or anything like that, we did see uh, people steadily coming to faith in Christ, um, taking their first few steps in discipleship, uh, becoming friends with one another, and it, it became a truly uh, multi-ethnic community in which God deepened friendships across uh, racial, ethnic, and generational lines. Uh, so uh, it, it's, you know, been about 11 years now um, since uh, the, the community started and uh, we're more established uh, at this point, but uh, still uh, striving for and grasping at all that we we hope God will turn our community into. Well, initially, the the church planting script that I somehow had had learned from conferences and and others was uh, you needed to have a large stable core team. You needed to launch big. Um, pull off spectacular services that would attract people. You know, once uh, the community became very popular after that, you, you plant another church and you just kind of ride a wave of success <laughs> into uh, a church planting network or multi-site or uh, whatever, you know, things would develop into. And I, I saw even before we moved to the community that that would not be the path that God was calling us on. I, I really wanted a truly authentic, honest, organic community um, where real people could have real friendships with others who, who weren't uh, like them and still feel uh, completely accepted. And that, that really was my vision. I don't even know if I could have articulated that at the time. Uh, it's just something that uh, God had put in my heart. Uh, I really wanted a place where people sense the accepting love of God. And um, it's it's strange. I mean, with all the different uh, church planting uh, movements out there, um, I, I just, I heard a, a lot of information about a lot of uh, 
you know, different values and church planting and, and what needed to be prioritized. But I, I felt like my heart was just longing for a community in which people felt they could come in as they, as they are, um, you know, sense the open arms of God and um, grow together, um, heal together, uh, learn the Jesus way together. Uh, that's, that's really what I wanted to see. That, that aspect of my imagination for this community has always remained consistent and uh, it's something I still want us to um, want us to really focus on and become more of. Um, and yet at the same time, the, there was distance between, of course, the idea and the practical outworking of what that would entail. I, I didn't realize uh, that that would involve, um, you know, uh, so much um, bearing with one another through through difficult situations, um, really uh, putting in the work of of understanding one another and going through everything that you need to. Uh, to recognize what love looks like to someone else, uh, particularly uh, across racial and cultural lines. That takes work. That takes a lot of uh, work that, you know, you can't do in a library uh, by yourself and um, find out about, you know, through a seminary curriculum, you really have to log the time with actual people and understand uh, them, their stories, their families, their culture. Um, that takes a significant amount of time, and um, and still does for me in this context, and for everyone who is truly committed to our community. I'm struck by the kind of work Luke describes as required for planting this kind of community. It's investing in the slow, hard work of tending to friendship in the midst of what felt like chaos, making space to encounter Jesus and to bear with one another. Luke's strategy was not bringing in a lot of people from the outside. Rather, Luke immersed himself in relationships already established in the community. When white men parachute into new places trying to cultivate a multi-ethnic community, there are so many dangers. But if you want to cultivate a community where real people can have real friendships with others who are not like them, as Luke says, and not just create multi-ethnicity on the terms of prevailing white evangelical culture, then you need a new script. A script that makes essential and forefront the work of learning what love looks like to others, particularly across racial and ethnic differences. I don't know how white leaders like myself can commit to the work of cultivating multi-ethnic communities beyond colonial terms without this in the foreground. The most disruptive bit for me about how Luke describes what this looks like is that you can't learn this conceptually in a library. It only comes by logging the time, getting mixed up with bodies and stories unlike my own. Becoming a multi-ethnic church, it's really been uh, about two things. Um, one is um, focusing on remaining a reconciling community, uh, putting in the work that it takes to be one uh, and recognize that 
that involves ongoing rhythms of really learning to understand one another, um, working through conflict, um, honoring one another by um, just allowing God to deepen your friendships um, by trusting him through uncomfortable seasons. Um, and uh, in addition to that, really recognizing and um, valuing uh, each individual person and each culture represented in the church. Um, so uh, celebrating, celebrating Black History Month, you know, um, making sure that, uh, you know, when somebody reveals that something is, is um, really important to them culturally, um, praising God for that and making sure that it's visible in the community. Uh, people, of course, tell you what's important to them if you listen long enough. And when you hear it, uh, it it's important that we show one another that we value each other by um, really honoring that story in, in the church. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, one thing that we do in our church or did before COVID and we'll do again after COVID is uh, we had a monthly love feast gathering. Uh, and in some ways, um, you know, kind of like a traditional church potluck and that everybody brings a dish and, and you all eat together, but this wasn't an after the service or before the service sort of event. Um, it was part of the worship. So people, would come bring uh, different dishes that were significant to them. And um, the beginning of the service is us feasting together, interacting uh, together, and then usually uh, viewing um, a brief film that can guide us in a, a discussion about um, some aspect of discipleship before we, we prepare to hear the preaching of the word. And then, uh, the service culminates in, uh, you know, the practicing of the Lord's Supper. So um, it was, you know, not only just a, a wonderful shift in our uh, liturgy, so to speak, uh, each month, but also um, just an opportunity for us to to learn, hey, you know, like what, what food are you eating at home? Why is that significant to you? Um, and just... Um, experiencing the joy of, of uh, connecting with one another in that way. Well, when it comes to, to reconciliation, uh, one thing we, we decided early on is uh, we, we really need a way of, of showing people that this is extremely important to us. Um, and uh, We've um, right now we're we're in a stronger place than we've ever been spiritually and and relationally. But one thing uh, a lot of church planters discover is early on, you know, you're just getting to know each other and trying to figure out how to do community. And there there are a lot of assumptions that uh, people bring into a church plant and. Um, a lot of misunderstandings that abound. And we, we found that in a multi-ethnic context, um, those misunderstandings uh, are, 
are multiplied uh, just because there's so much uh, that that um, you don't understand about uh, one another's cultures sometimes. So uh, we decided that you know a crucial aspect of of our church would be um, just really learning to um, yeah just have those conversations in a faithful way. Uh, so in our membership process, we decided we were going to let people know, um, you know, how to work through conflict uh, that hasn't translated into a heaven meets earth community, um, but it has brought some some wonderful relational stability over the last five years, and uh, you know we we see as a result uh, friendships deepening in our church um, significantly. And, um, and that's something that I'm praising God for. The concrete work of cultivating a community marked not by homogeneity, but by a fellowship of difference begins by listening to and honoring what actually matters to people. This work is not about a kind of generic or neutral equality, but about honoring the stories of those whose ethnic identities are undervalued or underrepresented amidst the prevailing social and ecclesial cultures in your context. This is, of course, what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the lowliest members of the body being given the greatest honor. Honoring the lowliest members is also the social outworking of the love feast practice that Luke describes. The love feast at Christian Neighbors Church literally and figuratively frames what it means to honor other people. I'm struck by how these spaces can be characterized by curiosity and delight, sharing in the difference of others. Not all religious feasting functions this way, of course. It's not automatic. If there's space for table fellowship at all in a community, there can also be a kind of eating that reinforces the cultural supremacy of one group over others. This is what Paul is getting at a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians when he's describing a kind of eating that destroys the body. The other thing that I'm reminded of when listening to Luke is that tables necessarily bring conflict, especially when not everyone's the same. We know this even in our own families. Maybe this is why many congregations avoid the vulnerability of the table altogether, choosing a cheap kind of peace. But the point illuminated in Luke's story is not whether conflict emerges at all, but whether the community is committed to entering that conflict as the concrete space where God's reconciliation takes root between us. Think about the tables in your community. Whose stories are honored most there? Right now, um, there are lots of different folks coming uh, to our community. Um, some are African-American, some are Caucasian, others are Hispanic, and others uh, Asian-American or biracial. Um, we see uh, folks coming in from all sorts of, of different church backgrounds as well. Some people have no church background whatsoever. Uh, we have a lot of 
uh, evangelicals who uh, have had painful experiences in, in other communities coming in, uh, a handful of seminary folks um, that, are, that are connected, and um, a number of folks, uh, you know, in the neighborhoods surrounding our church who, um, you know, maybe have a, a mother or grandmother who who uh, took them to church a handful of times and um, they come in professing faith with a handful of church experiences, but have never really been in a Christian community walking closely with others uh, as they're, you know, hearing the word preached and worshiping. Uh, so uh, really we have, we have people uh, from many different backgrounds and, and church backgrounds gathered together. We're an evangelical free church of America community. Uh, so uh, what I love about our tradition is um, we are a, a word-centered tradition. We have a high view of scripture and really view the Bible as uh, the only measuring stick for, um, you know, faith and life um, as a Christian. So um, it's something I, I praise God for in the free church. Um, at the same time, we're, we're a peculiar free church um, in, in um, some other ways. And um, there is a, a growing emphasis on multiplying um, multi-ethnic churches uh, throughout our tradition. Yeah, in our church, uh, we're we're a solo pastor community, and I'm accountable to uh, an elder board. Uh, however, we're also congregational, so um, there are decisions that come up every year that uh, the entire church votes on. Uh, you know, at least um, the the passing of the proposed budget, and um, for example, if um, if elders are nominated, they need to be uh, approved by a congregational vote. And then uh, the calling of a new senior leader is something that the church also votes on as well. We have a wonderful staff in our church, um, a, a church administrator who's kind of an administrative assistant plus. Uh, she's the one responsible for taking elder decisions and, and really overseeing um, their administrative execution. And then um, we have a, a wonderful treasurer who does way more than just dispersing the funds, but um, uh, just does a great job helping us make strides financially. Um, in addition to that, we have two worship leaders and we also have um, a van driver and custodian who is a, a a wonderful pillar of our community um, because a, a number of folks uh, who attend our church regularly don't have transportation. So uh, he makes sure that everybody can get not only to every service on time, but every church event, every Bible study, everything that people need to grow in their faith. The details Luke outlines in this last segment probably seem really mundane. But I want to continue to draw attention to how much of your congregation's identity, the stuff that actually constitutes who you are to one another and the world, beyond and deeper 
than the values on your website that says who you aspire to be, this identity is lodged in these little ordinary details. Getting access to what is really going on beneath the waterline of conscious awareness in your congregation means paying attention to and being curious about these little details. Don't miss what Luke says about the van driver for Christian Neighbors Church, about the integral role this van driver plays in sustaining the life and witness of their community. My point is not simply that he is often overlooked and should get some more recognition. My point is more profoundly theological, that his embodied faithfulness is the good news of Jesus taking on flesh among them. His practices are a kind of sacrament, a means of grace, a concrete invocation to be present to Jesus' presence and to one another. These seemingly mundane social realities of our congregations can help us see the truth about who we really are, even the ugly truths. And they can also reveal what we often miss about how God's Spirit is renewing our life together. One tension we've run into uh, throughout the years is um, recognizing what it takes to to reach our community. Uh, Personally, I've been so conditioned um, by Midwestern evangelicalism uh, that it's it's still a struggle for me uh, to to break out of kind of a big box church mentality uh, where programming is is very important and um, you know the to do list reigns and you you have to think through the production of things uh, really in terms of my giftedness I've never been wired in a way that would allow me to do any of those things very well. Um, but um, at the same time, I, I do associate, um, you know, programming with church success and, and so on and so forth. And a huge adjustment for me in this context is just realizing over and over again, it just doesn't have any currency where I'm serving right now. <laughs> People do not really care um, about how polished, uh, you know, some ministry production looks. Um, what what really uh, resonates with people as love here is time, uh, time spent listening, um, just um, being willing to um, to be there with folks as they're uh, going through through crises or celebrating wonderful events, um, just recognizing um, that the church family is an extended family that that we're all welcomed into. And so, if you, I mean, if you walk into our our community, um, it does the the structure does not look impressive. The the physical building, uh, I mean, we meet in the basement, the large open basement of an office building. Um, you know, there's, um, there are just so many, um, so many things in, in our community that um, are, are not impressive at all, but the, the people 
love one another and the relationships are rich. Um, the, you know, the friendships that um, have deepened within our community, um, th that's what, um, that's what's just powerful about our context and about our, our community in general. But um, in terms of how, you know, a Sunday service looks, we kind of have this uh, mistakes are okay mentality. Um, we're more concerned about people feeling accepted and valued and heard than we are about um, impressing one another. And I think in some ways that's, that's contributed to um, us remaining a, a small church because it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not something that is going to translate into uh, me leading workshops to coach up other young church planters uh, in terms of um, ministry production or worship arts or anything. Um, but on the other hand, it, it's a place where um, a lot of folks who uh, have felt devalued in various ways or rejected have found a home and a family. As I reflect on what Luke is describing, I'm struck by the thought that leading a community grounded in friendship and hospitality, a community not beholden to the drumbeat of religious programming, a truly multi-ethnic community that pierces through the vortex of white, monocultural evangelicalism. Leading into this kind of community requires deliberately investing in the kind of pastoral work that is not generally rewarded by the ministry-industrial complex. A tragic irony is that most of us are not rewarded in public ways, and yet most of us are also still haunted by those metrics. If you, my listener, are leading in a context where people are not impressed with your best attempts to make your church impressive, you can receive that as a gift. God forbid that you were actually impressive and that success did have currency in your congregation. God forbid. This kind of success is killing us. It's burning out pastors. It's continuing to wound and marginalize people. It's allowing white supremacy to live on in our churches under new disguises. The good news, though, is that for most of us, our ministry context is already filled with the non-impressive. It's already filled with our mistakes, and most people are probably way less impressed with us than we imagine or we hope that they would be. But Jesus is among us, bringing value to the invaluable, embracing those who violate our religious boundaries and challenge our notions of purity. He is inviting us into a kind of leadership that gets mixed up in these relationships and prioritizes them. How might you further embrace your glorious non-impressiveness in the season ahead? Who among you needs to know how valued and welcome they are? So our, our journey over the last 11 years uh, has been a long, slow one. And uh, what I've seen is um, our ministry is sticking with people. Um, really bearing with one another and just taking joy in what God can do um, in relationships and in a church family over time. 
Uh, I feel that um, the idol of efficiency plagues um, many church planting conversations. And um, there's, there's a lot of pressure on people who are trying to start a new work to get something going. Um, as Eugene Peterson would say, to whip up enthusiasm and, uh, and not enough emphasis sometimes at, at um, stepping back and really asking, what, what is God really doing here? And how can we, how can we um, continue to walk forward with one another faithfully at the pace that, that God is moving? Uh, for us, that's meant uh, some, some long stretches where it didn't seem like there was uh, a lot of impressive stuff going on. Uh, in fact, there's never really seemed to be much going on that is um, impressive uh, on a Sunday morning. Um, what, what seems to have value uh, to the people in our church uh, are real relationships that are deepened over time in unspectacular ways um, by simply um, being determined to remain committed to one another through everything that life throws at you. So um, that's, um, that's something that um, it, it's, it's difficult to keep that a priority um, if um, you know, the standard for the development of the community isn't care. If it's something else um, like efficiency or polish uh, or success in worldly terms, it, it, it doesn't work. But, um, you know, in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, uh, Paul writes about um, just the, the building process of the church at Corinth and um, his, his exhortation is, but, um, you know, we should build with care, um, makes, make health the standard of the church, allow um, what really matters uh, in terms of the, the building up of the community, uh, what will yield eternal fruit and eternal reward to, to drive what you do in ministry. And Judgment Day will, will reveal, um, you know, what was really built to last and what isn't. Uh, there's a lot that we've learned about um, mistakes that we've made and, and, um, and uh, what hasn't been built to last, but my hope, my hope for the future in our community is uh, that we will really focus on what has lasting eternal value, that care will be our standard, that uh, the health of our community and our city um, will be, you know, primary in, in our vision, and we'll be courageous enough uh, to just really work toward that regardless of how it looks to the rest of the world. One thing that gives me hope in, in our setting is uh, I see churches coming together in fresh ways uh, in, in our city. Years ago, there was an initiative started up called the Mosaic Initiative, and uh, our church was um, one of 12 that you know, joined together to reach young adults, as uh, many were observing that uh, millennials were 
slowly disappearing from the church. So this was a concerted effort to uh, try to reach young adults. Um, but what it's brought an in, brought an into uh, is deeper partnerships between all the folks in these churches, wonderful friendships between the pastors. We're seeing God, uh, God do some things that we haven't seen in our city before. Um, there's like, for example, in our church, uh, there are so many um, wonderful young adults that God is using mightily um, to, to run important aspects of our ministry. Um, and there are uh, all kinds of different ways that, that we're partnering, you know, within this initiative to, to try and, um, you know, present, um, present Jesus um, to our city in ways that people may not expect. Um, for example, yesterday, uh, a few of us uh, pastors from this initiative, we showed up at um, a middle school where we, we heard that, um, you know, <clears throat> Uh, teachers have just been feeling the weight of the COVID season. Uh, of course, you know, the pandemic is difficult for everybody, uh, but teachers have an especially difficult task of continually adjusting and, um, you know, wearing their mask all day long, teaching students who are wearing their masks and um, just adhering to COVID protocols while all, you know, trying to manage a classroom and, and, um, and teach lessons day after day after day. It's just, it just wears on people. So um, we showed up and, and, um, you know, helped hold this event called um, Tacos for Teachers. We just invited all the teachers to uh, get tacos that were being made by a friend of one pastor and, um, and then we handed out t-shirts and just said, we appreciate you. Uh, and there, there are little ministry events like that, that, you know, aren't explicitly evangelistic, um, but um, they open doors with people and just um, make an impression on folks in our community. And uh, little events like that are, are multiplying. Um, and at the end of that event, uh, one one man who is uh, dean of the school just came up to us and said, "I was just wondering if you know you could um, pray for our students and and um, and so uh, it's just something that um, you know we we were able to do um, on our own and we just praise God for that." Thanks for listening to the Field Notes podcast. This last episode in our first season. And thanks to Luke for sharing how God's Spirit is working in his context. Remember, the Field Notes podcast is a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the kind of work we do at the Telos Lab for Congregational Discovery. If you're interested in how you can partner in your ministry context with the Telos Lab, drop me an email. You can find that address in the show notes. And I'm excited about... All the things that are upcoming for 2022, please stick around, come check us out, see what we've got coming. Peace.